Uh, in your bulletin, I want to highlight this is Vision Sunday, as Jones has mentioned a number of times. In your bulletin, on uh, you can find um, a description of where we have a vision of where the Lord's going to be taking us in coming years, along with uh, what we're calling our family identities, which is essentially our strategic uh, objectives and goals that we want to be pursuing, but not just goals and objectives, but identities, things that no, we not only want to just do, we want to be as a church. Um, and then you'll find on the back part of that three questions to help facilitate your thinking in regards to this. Um, you probably, you'll look through it, and it's, uh, this is definitely designed to be an outline in which we're going to expound upon it tonight. And so um, it's enough to hopefully uh, whet your appetite to bring you back out tonight to ask these same kind of questions. Um, there's, uh, there's ways in order to send in your questions. If you're looking at this this afternoon, you can text or email them in. You can text or email them in during the presentation tonight. But we'd strongly encourage you to be there at 6 o'clock this evening. But to set the um, biblical um, tone for where we're going to be talking about tonight and where we hope to be going as a church, I want to talk this morning about the call to multiply. And so we're going to start out in Mark chapter 4. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we're going to be in verses 30 to 32. Um, I've been here for four years. And... um, I grew up in a church where my dad was a pastor for 25 years. I spent from the time I was six months until I went off to college in the same church. I never thought I would love a church as much as I loved what, you know, what many of us would call our home church. That has proved um, to not be true. I think I love this church even more than that one. This is a phenomenal church to be a part of. You should consider yourself to be blessed if you're here. And it's not because... I'm leading this place. Frankly, I'm the biggest problem. Um, They hired a 30-year-old. They were stupid. Um, But God, in his great provision, has been so gracious to us. In large part, it's seen in the graciousness to me and the patience to me as a pastor. Here's the question. Wouldn't it be unbelievable if there was churches like this one everywhere? You see, for many of you, you've experienced church life, and it hasn't been this sweet. Frankly, there's many ways in which we can make this this church much sweeter, and we'll talk about that tonight to some degree. But there is is unhealthy churches everywhere, and then where there aren't unhealthy churches, there's no churches at all. And we think that that's a problem, and we want to engage with that. So, this morning, we're going to look at the biblical theology of of multiplication. We're going to start in four, Mark 4 and then push off from there. This is unapologetically a topical sermon. I'm not looking to exegete Mark 4. But um, yeah, what's going on in Mark 4 is Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God and what it's like. And he gives a number of parables there, and he's proclaiming that when Jesus has come, that he has inaugurated, that he has begun and established God's kingdom on earth. Let me pick up in verse 30. And he said, that's Jesus, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Now, really quickly, uh, we understand it's not the smallest seed in the earth. It was the understanding in the ancient Middle East that that was the smallest seed in the earth. So he's speaking to his audience 
It's a small seed of all, of all the seeds on earth. And yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. What Jesus has said here, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is, and what we see throughout scripture, is that the, the kingdom of God starts really small. In fact, when the kingdom of God comes, you hardly even notice it. It's like the tiniest of all seeds. But within the kingdom of God is a power which expands and multiplies and becomes something that takes over wherever it's at. And so we're gonna, well, that's the idea of multiplication. So this morning we're going to look at the biblical call to multiply. We're first going to look at the design. Then we're going to look at the theological context. And then finally the power, all for multiplication. We'll look at the design first. Understand this, that from the very beginning of creation, from the very fabric and the DNA of creation, God has designed it, not simply in Jesus' teachings, but from the very beginning, for all things, healthy things, to multiply. We see it in God's creation mandate to Adam and Eve. And actually, we even see it to the animals. That what you see in each of the days of the week is God is making the animals as he calls them and they are to multiply. But then he comes to Adam and Eve and he says, these are my image bearers. And he says, the first command in all of scripture is the call here to be what? Be fruitful and multiply. That's his first command. Man is made in the image of God. We reflect the glory of God in this world. And so what God is saying is, as a means of taking my glory and reflecting it across all the world, is these people ought to multiply not only in child making, but also in taking their creative designs as I am a creator and expanding this garden to the ends of the earth. We are to reflect who God is. You want to know about my holiness and my love and my rule and reign over creation it is going to be extended through these image bearers. So that's what's called the creation mandates. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, is that, is, now then Adam and Eve, it doesn't stay so happy because Adam and Eve then fall. They reject God. They reject God's plans. So does God's plans change? The answer is no. We come to Noah. After the world has gotten horribly bad, God comes in and destroys the world, except for Noah and his family. In God's judgment, he saves Noah. And the first thing, the first command that God gives Noah when they walk off the boat is what? Be fruitful and multiply, it says in Genesis 9. God is still committed to his method of multiplication as the means of bringing his image bearers and his glory to the end of the earth. We see this continue in the story of Abraham. Abraham, God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. How is God going to bless the earth? By multiplying Abraham and his family. As God's covenant and his plan with Abraham unfolds in the book of Genesis, he says, I'm going to make your, your family as numerous as the stars in the heavens and as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And then we see that played out in the life and history of Israel itself. As Abraham's family, like we understood nations used to be developed, was this way. It was families would become clans and then tribes and then ultimately a large nation. And this is what happens. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel is the family of Abraham expanded over generation after generation. And they multiply by the end of Genesis. 
So much so that the people of Egypt, where they live, are becoming rather insecure about how great and how numerous the people of Israel are. And so what do they do? They enslave them. Does that stop them from multiplying? No, because what we see at the beginning of Exodus is at the beginning of Exodus, Pharaoh is having major issues. And in fact, he creates a a way of um, seeking infanticide of the Hebrew children because they're multiplying so rapidly that they're afraid that even in enslavement, they will be able to rise up and destroy Egypt. Eventually, God refrees the people of Israel from Egypt. They go out into the wilderness. God makes a covenant with them. And he says, listen, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. It's called the promised land. Why? Because God promised it to Abraham. Israel is the fulfillment, and at least partial fulfillment, of God's promises to Abraham that I will give them a land and I will make them numerous. They are now numerous and they're getting a land. And he says that when you enter the land, I'm going to make you numerous. And in fact, what's going to happen, I'm going to establish my presence in my temple near you. And as a means of being a blessing to all nations, that the way it was supposed to work was Israel was to be so attractive and so beautiful in the way it lived under God's law that all the nations of the world would go, we want to worship that God. And that all the nations of the world would descend upon Israel as a means of worshiping God in the temple. Is that what happened? No. See, we get a repeat of Adam and Eve. The call is to multiply, to be a blessing to all the nations, and yet we, we reject that. Instead, we turned away from it. Israel turned away from it. They reject God, so eventually God sends them back in slavery. But even in slavery, once again for the second time, we see that God calls them to be fruitful and multiply. In Jeremiah 29, when Israel has been sent off to exile in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah comes to them with a message from God, and he says this, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The means the means of being a blessing to the nations is for God's people to multiply, even in enslavement, to multiply. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus comes and he says, both here in our passage, we also see it in John 12, 24. Jesus comes and he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about his death, that he is the seed. That he comes in and he does not, the king comes in a way that we do not expect, becomes for the most part unnoticed, and he dies. But in his death, he produces an enormous harvest for his kingdom. And after Jesus, the good seed has died and fallen to the ground, he's then resurrected and is producing a harvest around the world. And so he calls his disciples. And Matthew 28, we read it at the end of our worship section this morning. He gives them the same call, essentially, that Adam and Eve had and that Abraham had and that the people of Israel had, and that is to be fruitful and multiply. And he says it this way, go and make disciples of all nations. It's multiplication once again. Multiplication. The church, what do we see? How does the church apply this? In the book of Acts, the book of Acts is all about how the church and the early church is applying God's or Jesus' commission and call to go and make disciples of all nations. And the constant refrain of God's people is they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, they're led out by the Holy Spirit, and they are being fruitful and they are multiplying wherever they go. Let me just walk through Acts briefly. And Acts 6 says this, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the word of God spread, it said. Acts 9, verse 31, it says, The people of God... We're walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Spirit. And the church was 
multiplying. Acts 12, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. Acts 13, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And Acts 19, and the way of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. By the end of Acts 28, what we have seen is the gospel has gone to the ends of the known worlds. It is going everywhere. In fact, what we see at the end of Revelation when, when the mission will be done, what do we find there? is that the mission will be complete because their people from all tribes, tongues, races, ethnicities enter into to worship God. And in heaven, the only thing that will be left to multiply will be joy upon joy and worship upon worship of the greatness of our God as we spend all of eternity basking in the depths of his glory. This is the vision of the scriptures from beginning to end that we are to multiply. He's put it in every living organism that this is what they do. So that is the simply overwhelming theme of multiplication in this biblical story. But here's the question. What is to be multiplied? What is to be multiplied? In order to answer this, in order to to bring it to a finer tip, I'm going to have us, we just did what in the theological world was called biblical theology, where you follow one stream or one theme in the scriptures and you follow it from beginning to end. Now I'm going to take you to the, another aspect of, of theology. It's called systematic theology. And systematic theology, what we do is we look at the whole of the scriptures and we take questions to it. And we say, what do the scriptures as a whole, in a summarized way, say about answering this question? So we're going to go about this uh, in grinning creating some theological context for multiplication by asking three questions this morning. The first is this. What is God's purpose for the world? What is God's purpose for the world? Biblically, we know that the purpose of the world is to, you have it catechized as a kid, to glorify God, right? The first question that my kids have learned from me, Drew, even my, my 18, 20-month-year-old knows it. Drew, why did God make you? To glorify him. First question in the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We also see in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verse 9, the first thing that we're going to pray about. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your name be hallowed, be considered holy and mighty and weighty in this world. And what must be seen in answering this question as this is God's purpose for all the worlds. For all the worlds, purpose is to come. It's for God has a passion for His glory to be seen by everyone, and for everyone, all creation in all the world to worship Him. Not just a few people, as in Abraham and Adam and Eve, or not just a particular family, as Abraham's family, or one particular nation like the Israelites, but all peoples. That's why in the Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight it says, "Go therefore to all nations." And make disciples. This is the theme of passion we see in the Psalms. Let me just read a couple for you. Psalm 67 says this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That's the ironic benediction. That your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Can he say all the nations or all the ends of the earth enough times in one chapter? 
Psalm chapter, chapter 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will glorify your name. The vision of the scriptures and the God's mission, the missio day of God's. The missio day is to, for his name to be glorified by all peoples. There's a fairly well-known quote by John Piper that goes this way in regards to missions and the role of missions. He says this, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So the purpose of the earth is what? To glorify God, to worship God. This is God's purpose for the world, for all creation, all races, all peoples, people groups. So this is where we start with vision, a vision for the glory of God. Is your heart inclined in that direction? Because nothing else matters. It starts there. Second, though, we must move to the next question. If God's passion, if God's purpose for the world is to worship and glorify him, How has God chosen to glorify his name amongst the nations? What is the means by which he is bringing this about? Now, we know that the supremacy of Christ, the glory of Christ, is brought about in individuals. That he changes individual hearts so that they worship him and give glory and honor to him. But how is it that God is glorified not simply amongst individuals, but entire nations and entire people groups? The answer is found in the Lord's Prayer. To start at verse 9, it says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But then he answers, How is God going to be hallowed? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is hallowed, God is worshipped, God is glorified as his kingdom comes. Which is described here as meaning that, the, that our world will become like it is in heaven. In heaven, everything God desires, all his will is perfectly kept, and he is rightly worshipped. And when what happens in heaven perfectly happens on earth, that's when God's glory is perfectly fulfilled on this world. This is the call and purpose that Jesus is coming for. The purpose of Jesus is coming and giving glory to the Father, and the Father giving glory to Jesus as the Son of God. And the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross was this. wasn't simply to save your individual soul. It was way bigger than that. The reason why Jesus came to earth and died on the cross is to establish a beachhead on this world and says, this is my kingdom. I am going to take this place for the glory of God. That's why he came, to establish his kingdom in the world. And we see this in all the prophecies of the Old Testament, in particular in Isaiah 9. We sing Isaiah 9. Every year around Christmas time, we get so excited about Isaiah 9. And here's what it says in Isaiah 9, picking up in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. What's the government? That's a kingdom. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What's he saying there? Is that when this, this son, who's the son? Jesus, 
Jesus is the son. This is why the angels sing this. And the magi, they, they, or the, the men, the wise men come and worship him. And the shepherds worship him as the son who is prophesied in Isaiah. That the son has come and he is coming to establish his kingdom. He is a king. And what do kings do? They establish kingdoms. And it says the increase of his government will not ever cease. So when Jesus comes and in his work here on the cross, he establishes his kingdom. And that kingdom is growing more and more and more and more. Now, this is a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. We see this in Colossians 2.15. It says that Jesus, by his death on the cross, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And it's a spiritual kingdom that is becoming and being made manifest in the world. This kingdom that Jesus has ushered in has only, has only been inaugurated. And that means that you and I are living in a day, because you've asked the question, well, if Jesus' kingdom has come, what in the world, why is there all this terrible stuff that's still going on? And the answer is, his kingdom has been inaugurated, but the rule and reign of his kingdom is being spread throughout all the earth over the course of history. That it's taking time, and one day we'll feel the full expression, the consummation of his return when he's going to make finally his kingdom powers fully known in all the earth. We're in between the resurrection and the full restoration. It's called the already and the not yet, in which we are experiencing, some of us are experiencing the goodness of God's provision, life in his kingdom. We don't experience it fully until he finally returns. So God's kingdom is going to come. We get a foretaste of it. So here's the question. So first, the purpose of the world is to glorify and worship God. The means by which God is bringing glory to himself is to come as a king who is establishing a kingdom in this world. The third question is this. How has God chosen to advance his kingdom in the world today? How has God chosen to advance his purposes in the world? Well, we see early on in the Old Testament that he worked individually, right? Adam and Eve, Enoch, You've ever heard of Enoch, Noah. But then he works through a family, Abraham's family. Then finally he worked through a nation, Israel. And now, how has he chosen to work? What is God using to advance his kingdom in this world? The church, the church is what God is using to advance his kingdom. This means the means by which God is changing the world and bringing his perfect kingdom to bear, making it manifest means his peace, his righteousness, his justice, his glory, making it known in the world is through these things called redemptive families known as the church. That is the means by which he is bringing his kingdom to bear. In Matthew 16, verse 18, we'll end look at this at the end this morning, but Jesus says this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9, Peter says this, we'll read in verses 4 through 5 and then jump down to verse 9. He says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, this is individuals, are being built up as a spiritual house, that's a family, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, the church is the fulfillment of all the, all the images of God's people in the Old Testament. It is a family, it is a nation, it is a royal priesthood. The church is the means of revealing God's kingdom work in this world. 
The church is now the means of advancing God's kingdom so that God's spiritual kingdom, it is spiritual, unseen, it is invisible, is being made visible through you, physical people, and through a physical, visible church. In other words, we're supposed to live in light of what is our church in the way we live our life. is supposed to live as ones who live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul says this about God's kingdom and the role of the church. He said, it is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in all spheres, in our jobs, in our families, in our schools, in our checkbooks, because God in Christ is king over every one of these spheres of life. And the only way the kingdom of God is going to be made manifest, that is to be seen in this world before Christ comes, is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven right now. You are not citizens ultimately of this earth. You're citizens of a different kingdom. And so you live by those ethics and by the economy of that kingdom. What he is saying is that we live, if we live obediently to this kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ, we are displaying the blessed life of the kingdom of God. In other words, what he's saying is that if we live out the kingdom life before the world, and not only that, but we seek to spread the joy of kingdom life in all spheres, this spiritually starts in us, and but this changes and is made manifest to the world what, what God's heaven is going to look like. In other words, you've seen a movie teaser, right? That's who the church is supposed to be. That you're supposed to, people of the world are supposed to look at the church and say, if that's a tease of God's kingdom to come, then I want to be a part of that kingdom. That's why he says they'll know you by your love. We're supposed to live out the justice and the righteousness of God's kingdom, the unity of God's kingdom. The church reveals the justice, the peace, the relational harmony, and the joy of being God's people. I had a professor who described the church as being kingdom outposts. Kingdom outposts that are placed all over the world. Now, this is not a very happy image for those of you that like, look back and have a really uh, disdaining view of uh, American imperialism moving west. But I'm going to use it anyways because it's the best thing I can come up with. But as we moved west, what did we do? We established outposts. People would go and they would settle. And then we'd send a fort out there. We'd put some military guys there. And it would become a center hub. This is what the church is. We send settlers out, we make some disciples, and then we establish outposts called churches that helps bind the people of God together to hope to bring the kingdom. In that case, it was the kingdom of America. This is a much better kingdom that we get to be a part of. This is the kingdom of God that we establish outposts of. That's what the church is, a reflection of the values and the ethics and the desires of our king. And the way in which we accomplish the vision of God is for his Holy Spirit to build his church in such a way that we end up sending as much as we have our best people, our best resources, our money to spread more and more kingdom outposts all over our area and all over the world. This is the call of God and the mission of God. Here's the implication, brothers and sisters. We made, we, three years ago, we, sat to, we, we stood in front of you and said, the mission of God's church is to make disciples, and that is absolutely still the case. That's the central heart, heartbeat of our church. It says in the Great Commission. But the primary means that God calls us to make disciples is through what? Through the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore, here's the implication for all this. If we want to see God's glory, the purpose of the world fulfilled, 
by worshiping God, and we want to see the advance of his kingdom, then we have to be about planting churches. That is the vision. And this is important to see. The Great Commission call to make disciples is inherently and inextricably linked to planting more churches. Multiplying disciples and multiplying churches, they go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. The Great Commission, what does it say? Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them. Baptism has always, in all history of the church, no matter your views of whether you baptize babies or not, it's this, that it's, it's a sign and seal, a representation, that you belong to the corporate, visible body of God's church. You cannot baptize disciples if there is no church. You baptize them into the church. God does not call us to go and plant rogue disciples who are just kind of, you know, meandering out there in the hinterlands. No, God calls us to go make disciples and then form them and bring them together as a church. This is the pattern we see in Acts. And we're going to look at Acts a lot. We're going to start that right after Labor Day. And I'm going to totally, I'm going to brainwash you into this. (laughs) Because it is so utterly and abundantly and obviously clear that the pattern, the way in which the church went about fulfilling this mission of making disciples was here's what Paul would do. He'd go to a city. He'd preach. He'd usually get beat up a little bit. But people would come to get saved. He would teach them. He would disciple them. He would baptize them. And then he would leave. But before he would leave, he would establish a core of leaders called elders to lead the church. And he would gather the believers in a city and he would say, you're a church. You get to be the community of God. Reflect God's kingdom here in this place, in this city. This is Paul's method. This is the method of the early church. We are to make disciples in order with the end goal of planting churches. Now, this goes back and forth. It's also important to see that the mission of making disciples... the most effective way of making disciples is to plant more churches. So you, plant church, you make disciples to plant churches, and you plant churches to make disciples. They go hand in hand. Donald McGavran, who is the dean of world missions at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is essentially in the Christian kind of, it's an area of study called missiology, which is a study of how does the church go about missions in all the scriptures? How do we see God's people doing missions? And then tries to apply that to missional approaches in the modern times in our context. But he says this, The essential task in a world where three-fourths of all men and women have yet to believe in Jesus Christ as God and Savior is that of planting new churches. The goal is the establishment of a church of committed Christians in every community, every neighborhood, every class and condition of people where everyone can hear and see demonstrated the gospel in his own tongue and has a reasonable opportunity to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Peter Wagner, another missiologist from Fuller, says this, planting churches, planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic methodology known under heaven. New churches see people get saved. Established churches hardly ever see people get saved. You know why? Because new churches, by their design, they don't have to serve all of you. You drop someone into a new city, you know, their number one goal is, I'm going I'm to evangelize. That's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to share my faith 24-7, all day long. I'm going to reach people with the ultimate goal of planting a church. The best way to make disciples, the best way to do evangelism is to plant new churches. The purpose of the church is to glorify God by seeking to make the invisible kingdom visible through the work of making disciples and planting churches. Same vision we've had, just expanding 
our understanding of it. Now, here's the imperative to take hold of. We have to take hold of this imperative because the need is so desperate. And the need is not just desperate around the world. Yes, three-quarters of the world, and more than that, do not know or have ever heard really the name of Jesus. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of, of people groups that are known as unreached peoples. They have no church, no believers in them. That's absolutely necessary. But you know what? It's also absolutely necessary that we plant churches here in America. Let me read you some stats. We are losing ground so fast here in America. Today, fewer than 20% of Christians attend church regularly. Did you know that, and this is really important, just for those of you that might go, why, are we gonna, why would we even think about planting a church in this area? Because I see churches everywhere. Did you know that only 15% of Carroll County goes to church? Now, in the stats, the stats, you have the demographic stats, many more people say they're Christians. But listen, as the great theologians have always said, is that you cannot have God as your father if the church is not your mother. So we have all these people out there who think they're Christians, and they have nothing to do with the church. Historically, that means you're not a Christian. 15% of Carroll County, did you know that Atlanta has more people going to church than us? Yes, the heathens in the city. You see, we country people... (laughs) We country people, we tend to think because we see churches on every corner of our cities here, out here in the countryside, in the West Georgia area, that we are far more Christian than those city people. The reality is we see churches everywhere. Here's the hard truth, brothers and sisters. There's no one in them. There's no one in them. Because here's the thing, long, long, long ago. Now listen, there's many churches in this city, in this county that preach the gospel. But for the, the far, far more of them, what they are about is they are about American moral traditions. And guess what? The American moral traditions are changing. And so we know what? They have no young people in their churches. Because they, they, they lost the power, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when social mores changed, their church died. And so you know what we have? We have Friendship Baptist, and we have Harmony Baptist, and we have That Street Baptist, and we have That Presbyterian Church, and That Methodist Church, and we have churches everywhere, and no one is in them. That's the truth of it. There's no one in them. So what we see every week, did you know that 43,000 Americans, they walk out the church door and they never come back? 43,000 Americans. Between, this year alone, between three and 4,000 churches will close in this country. Three to 4,000, which means we have to plant 4,000 churches just to keep up with the closing rates. Do you know that 100 years ago, there were 28 churches for every 10,000 Americans? 28 churches for every 10,000 Americans. There's now 11. There's now 11. We are losing. We are losing. Listen, you can, you can push plexus and you can push politics, but there's something better. And it's called the church. We want to, you want to change the culture? that you got to plant churches. Second, the second reason why this is an utter imperative is we will lose the, church, lose the church we have if we don't do this. We will lose the church we have. God's intention is the church would multiply. And the cost of multiplication is so great, that's why we don't want to do it. John 12, 25, 24, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now that's about Jesus' is dying and his resurrection. But then he says this in the next verse. It does not stop there. It says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world keep it for eternal life. In other words, we could say whoever loves this church loses it. Whoever hates his church in this world will keep the church for eternal life. The power of multiplication, what we see, like the seed imagery there, 
Multiplication requires death. I'm not sure we're going to get this in the church. You want to see God's kingdom advance? You got to die. You got to die. You got to be willing to suffer. You got to be willing to give up. We don't like this idea because multiplication is so costly for our churches. Because we're all about bigging, building bigger churches with bigger buildings. Did you know that now we have we have over 1,300 mega churches in America? But Leadership Network describes a mega church as being a church that has over 2,000 people in attendance each and every week. And so since the 80s, there's been what's something called the church growth movement. So we've seen more and more and more. We're seeing an increase of megachurches. So you'd think we'd see more Christians. Nah. Because they're having zero effect. Zero effect. What we're finding is having everybody just ball up and just creating this awesome church where we have 3,000 people and we just have programs for everything, 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 everything. And we have a Starbucks in our church. It's death for the church. It's death. Because if we can just continue to ball up and get bigger and bigger and bigger, you know the churches between the size, the churches plant before they hit 200 people in attendance and after they hit 1,000 in attendance. You know what happens between 200 and 1,000 and why they don't plant? Guess what they do? They spend $9 million to build a big building. And you know what it does? No mission is done for seven years. Nothing. And they just have to hope Oh, Lord willing, when we just get to be a 1,000 people, then we'll get faithful about carrying out the Great Commission. You'll lose your church. You'll lose your church. Listen, it's going to cost us comfort because you know what? We might have to send our best people. Shoot, we might have to send our worship leaders. I, didn't tell you, I haven't told you that yet. Um, <laughs> we might lose our worship leaders. We might lose elders. We might lose money. It means your kids don't have like, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we'll have a jungle gym. But I, I don't know. Whatever you want. Maybe we have to get rid of our high-priced coffee. Whatever it is, it's going to cost us something. That's why we don't want to do this. But here's the thing. If, if you lo- hold, try to hold on, I love this church. I love the fellowship that we have. And I think, I think God will continue to bless it. But you know what? If we try to hold on to it, it will slip through our fingers. Because God has designed the church to be on the move. To be on the move. You see, when the story and glory of one individual church becomes bigger than the story of the kingdom of God and the glory of God, it means death to that church. You know why? Because we have separated ourselves from the very power that causes us to exist. If we separate ourselves from the mission of God, you know what it becomes about? Your view of church and your mission about church and what you want with church. And you know what we end up doing in five years? We end up slitting each other's throats in the back halls. You see, in thousands and thousands and thousands of church this mo- churches this morning, you know what's happening? A bunch of blue hairs are getting together and they're whispering in the back halls and they're saying, don't you wish the church was the way it used to be? And the problem is, is that 10, 15, 20 years ago, when they were my age and they had an opportunity to engage in God's mission, they said, we're going to hold on to this, this sweet little community that we have this wonderful little church, and we're not going to let anybody else in, and we're not going to send anybody else out. And it killed it. Killed it. Makes me think of Tommy Boy, right? (laughs) Give a sale, it's there. (laughs) Sorry. Um, That wasn't in the notes. That wasn't in the notes. I left the notes like 10 minutes ago. All right, let's move on. Let's bring this to an end. What, how do we do this? Listen, if this is going to be so hard, if we're going to have to die, 
in order to multiply, we're going to have to have some good reason to do it. And I think the reason is in Matthew 16. It's where Jesus says, the gates of hell should not prevail. The power for multiplication is this, is that Jesus is the founder of the church. What we see, Jesus is founding the church in Matthew 16. And he's sitting and he's founding it. He's having a conversation with the disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's a city in the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. It's a city built by a man who was the son of Herod the Great, called Herod Philippi. There were museums and art and education. It was this great city. And it was built really close to a mount called Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon, there was a, it was a prominent cave at the, 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 the base of Mount Hermon that was um, believed to be the home of Baal, the son of death. That's who Baal was. He was an idol, a god of death, and he hibernated in the cave for winter is what was believed. And he would come out and wreak havoc in the spring. And it's in front of this cave, probably in the springtime, that Jesus is saying, who do men say that I am? And Peter says this. Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's, he's juxtaposing Baal, the son of death, to Jesus, the son of the living God. Life versus death. Now, Jesus turns to Peter, and he essentially says this, you have identified me, so now, in light of your question, your, your confession, I'm going to identify you. You are Petros, the rock. Now, we think, we hear that, and we go, that's a cool nickname. I want a nickname like that. It's like naming your kid Knox, right? It's a great name, Knox, rock. I'm Peter the rock. He had a tattooed on his chest. It's there forever. But actually, it's not what's going on. We think that's cool. It actually Jesus is making a little play on words. Here he is. He's standing in front of a mountain, and he calls Peter a rock, like a little rock. Now, you get the context, the imagery. Here's a mountain, and then there's little Peter. He's like a pebble. This is the imagery. He's saying, upon this little pebble, we're gonna, I'm going to build my church. We're going to have lots of little pebbles, but in the face of the world, it's going to appear like nothing. It's going to be just a little tiny rock. He's a little stone, but he says, I mean, upon this stone, I'm going to build something so mighty that it's going to overcome the massive, use a different word, Petros, not Petros, Petros, the mountains of this world. Remember who lives in the mountain? It's Baal, the god of death. The face of cosmic evil, the huge rock of wickedness upon this small stone, these little people.